I just think everyone is a VIP. If they're willing to come to you for a lesson, everyone deserves the same service. You really just have to have blind faith in your journey, no matter where it takes you. You know, because more often than not, you know, one, one door closes, another one or two can open. Hi, my name is John O'Driscoll, and you are very welcome to the Blueprint Podcast. Ask yourself one question. Have you a blueprint for success? Are you doing all you can do to get where you want to be? Join me and my guests each week as we discuss their blueprint for success. Can you do me a favor and can you please drop us a like or a follow wherever you get your podcasts? Spotify, Apple, Google, and please give us a five out of five star rating. It does really help. Thank you so much. This week's guest on the Blueprint Podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Gary Murphy. Gary is a former professional golfer on the European Tour, now head professional in the K-Club and uh, has recently joined the Legends Tour, a former senior tour on the European Tour. So welcome to the Blueprint Podcast, Gary Murphy. Thanks very much, John. Thanks for having me. We had uh, your, your friend Peter Laurie on the podcast last year. We spoke about a lot of things uh, golf-related and the changing landscape of golf. You were a pro for many years. How have you adapted to coming off tour and going back into inverted commas, regular life. Well, as you can see, I have no hair, John, so <laughs> not very well will be the first answer. Yeah, I, I played tournament golf from 96 up to my last event was 2012. Yeah, I found the transition difficult. I, you know, was at a difficult time as well because, you know, the economy was shot to pieces with the banking crisis Um you know, so the kind of opportunity, the normal kind of opportunity for kind of washed up pros as such, you know, kind of wasn't there. So I kind of had to think outside the box. Um, I'd always had an interest in coaching, but I didn't really want to get involved in that because, you know, I kind of still saw myself as a player, but there was just no opportunities really about. So I kind of humbly went to a driving range really and just started teaching people. That was one thing I did. But then I really enjoyed it and I thought, yeah, I'd like to kind of advance this a little bit. So I, I kind of, and the thing with coaching is, you know, even when you're a player, it's very different coaching people. You know, there's a lot more to than just what you think your knowledge is. And, and my knowledge was very good from a point of view of being a player, but hopeless from the point of view of being a coach. So it took me a long time um, to kind of get my head around that space too, that you're just there for the, the client um, or the customer. And it's basically their needs and wants are are paramount to, you know, they don't care who you are or what you are. They just want to get what they can from you to make their golf better. Mm-hmm. So you're very, uh, it's a different dynamic, whereas I was always the other side of the fence. And it's different nowadays with technology, with TrackMan and GC Quads. And the lesson experience is very different from what I would have grown up with. Mm-hmm. And I always... You know, think now that, you know, because you do personalized stuff more often than not. The information the kids have grown up now is just, they're so kind of far ahead of where we were learning the game. 
and we had to now the other side of it too is probably don't practice enough but we had to learn it through trial and error so you know the calluses on the hands are a lot more from our generation I think than they are from the new generation but from a culture point of view there's so much information out there now and it's um, and then you put your own slant on it you know and I think every decent coach is plagiarising from somewhere you know anyone says that they come up with stuff themselves is not necessarily the case and I think it's important you know when you're referencing ideas to players um, it's never all your own stuff you know it's your interpretation of stuff that you see so that was one thing I did. And then I got into golf commentary purely by chance, really. And I enjoyed it, but it's very hard to break into it because it's very much kind of closed shop in the UK. And, but I got in and I got probably from 2013 up to 2020, up to when COVID hit. I got a pretty decent career out of that. And then the whole dynamic of the business changed with COVID and they've streamlined it massively. You know, a big change in gender as well with, with the commentary team. There's a lot more women on the team now than there would have been when I started. Um, and the level that I was at, you know, is there a gender quota? They'll obviously say there's not, but undoubtedly there is. And, and that's a good thing as well. I think as long as people are able to do the job, it doesn't matter who does the job. But I was at a level like at 2020 where I would have been kind of one of the first guys to go. And then the opportunity came up for me in the K Club to be the pro, the teaching pro there and it just gave a lot more stability. And I was very fortunate, the owner there, the new owner, new owner came in, Michael Featherston. And, you know, he's just been phenomenal to work for. He's he's a self-made man and he just kind of gets it. I don't know what it is, but or what it is, but he gets it. And, you know, I've been so fortunate to kind of jump, jump on that bandwagon and, and be part of the K-Club. And honestly, every day I drive in, I still pinch myself. You know, I've a lot of gratitude and appreciation for how lucky I am to be able to work there. I think that there's a quite a lot of similarities between someone who's, say, a, a business owner, an entrepreneur, and a pro golfer. Because ultimately, you're self-employed. You go out, and if you don't make the cut, you don't earn any money that week. Yeah. You're effectively yeah. an employer because you're employing a caddy. You may be employing a coach. How did you find the move from basically being a self-employed individual for most of your career going, working for someone? I think since I was a kid, like I've always been, you know, able to kind of muck in and do what needs to be done. Like I've never had, it's probably a little bit of detriment to me in my own career, but I've never had, you know, a ferocious kind of air of grace about myself. I'd like to think anyhow. I've always been of the opinion that you just do what's required. And even like even from the point of view of the lesson to you, if I like if a tour player comes to me for a lesson or a beginner comes to me for a lesson, you know, everyone gets the same service. I think it's very important. You know, there's a thing, I guess, at times where you work in a five star resort and a VIP comes in, um, you know, and at times we might get, you know, internal emails about, you know, say a high end customer or a VIP is coming in. I, I just think everyone is a VIP. If they're willing to come to you for a lesson, everyone deserves the same service. So from my point of view, working for a team and being part of the team is, I think if everyone is kind of doing what they're supposed to do, you know, if everyone is doing what they're told within reason, there's a, 
you know, there's a tree, there's a line. Um, you know, Connor Russell, who was our director of golf for three years, and Connor was my immediate boss, and he was amazing. You know, and I learned so much from from him about because I'm always trying to learn from people because nobody knows everything. You know what I mean? And it's different when you're a tour player; you just need to know how to hit golf shots. But you can literally be dumb as dirt after that. People think you're a great fellow because you're just good at golf. But so I was always curious. Then, even when I was doing a bit of commentary curious to how the whole thing works i think it's important to to kind of learn on your feet because you're all the time doing that so i think i've adapted pretty well to not being the main man as such and it depends on you because like anything john i guess it depends on your bosses too if your boss is a bit of an arsehole it probably makes it a little more difficult you know i've only had one one real director of golf since i've been there and connor was was amazing to work with unfortunately he's kind of moved on now so we'll have a new a new person coming in, probably post post Irish Open. But you know, I'll kind of do the same as I did with Connor. I'll just go and go in and sit down and go listen. You know, we're all trying to make this brand and this product as good as we possibly can. And I think if everybody works together, if everybody gets treated fairly, I think that's very important in a work environment. From the guy collecting the balls on the range to you know whoever a high end client coming in, if you just treat everyone with the same respect, I think it makes the ship kind of flowed a little bit smoother. And and that's probably what our new owner has brought to the K-Club. You know, he's very much a self-made man and treats people fairly. And, you know, if you do your work and put the time in, and if you don't know what you're doing, you ask someone above you for advice. And, you know, there's nothing wrong, you know, with not knowing the answer to stuff. You know, and if you ask questions, that's how you find out the answer. No different to me. Like if I'm coaching someone, I think I can't fix them. You know, I'm going to ask people that I respect. You know, I had this guy for a lesson today and I literally had no idea how to fix them or you know what would you do in this situation because nobody has all the answers and if you think you do you're you're telling lies so I like helping people and I think coaching at times kind of suits me in that regard I, I do really get a buzz out of trying to help people um, and that just happens to be golf what I do so we're less than two weeks out from the Irish Open obviously a great deal of excitement around and um, very good feel like I mean you know obviously the Irish players Rory, Shane, Seamus, um, Adam Scott, Billy Horschel, Minu Lee you know there's a really really good field being assembled. What extra pressures are there on the likes of you leading into an Irish Open? Well, there's none really because uh, so my role my role was initially at the start um, a little bit in negotiations with the tour and then Paul Heary, who's our CEO, who's kind of chief of police, um, he's done all the heavy lifting, really, in the workings of bringing an event to to the K-Club. The European Tour are very experienced um, with their team, so they've been on site for, seems like, the whole year, really. So, you know, we've had, we've had many tournaments there in the past. So from the golf course... Point of view, Jerry Byrne, our course superintendent, has done, I don't know, they got to 20 tournaments and then would have been a consultant on other events. So he knows exactly what he needs to do to get the course perfect. And that's the thing about their owner as well. Like There doesn't seem, there's no corners being cut, you know, so whatever you need, you get type of thing. Um, and then he's going to get the added volunteers from the superintendent point of view that we're closed for a week before the tournament to get the course prepped and we have a lot of extra bodies in to help with that. So there's a lot of experience in the team and in getting the event. My role for the week of the tournament 
I'm going to be working in commentary with RTE whilst I'm on air from kind of 12 to 6 or 1 to 7 or whatever it be and then run around like a blue arse fly trying to do other stuff, you know, during the day. But we have a really good team and Niall Malloy, who's our golf operations manager. Niall has been at the K Club, you know, through all the European Opens and Irish Opens. So, and Niall knows, knows exactly, you know, how things work too. So we're, we're kind of lucky in that regard that we can all kind of bounce off one another and share ideas of past experiences. Um, and we're all just praying for Mother Nature plays our part. That's the big thing. As you said, John, like the field assembled is going to be very good. Um, if we can get it dry and 18 degrees with about a club and a half of wind and no rain, that would be um, utopia from our point of view. The competitive juices obviously are still there for you and you've made the decision uh, to go back out in the Legends Tour. Um, you've played, is it one or two events so far? I played three events. I played really well in my first event, which is probably the worst thing could have happened to me because I thought golf was easy again. Um, finished seventh, no idea what to expect. And then I played in Sea Point, which is a home. I live in Baltray. I've lived up here for 20 years. I'm originally from Kilkenny, but Sea Point would be a home event for me. And I, I played absolutely rubbish. Changed my clubs, changed my putter two weeks before the tournament, looking for the secret. And I didn't play well at all. And it was tricky enough. You know, it was very windy, which was fine because I'm, I'm used to playing in the wind. But I just, I was just trying too hard on the week. So that was my second event. I finished down the field. I finished, I don't know what I finished. I finished high 30s maybe. And then I played in Switzerland. Got in there last minute. So it was a bit of a rush getting over there. And then I was trying to juggle, you know, my calendar and diary in the K-Club too. And this, I mean, there's all of that as well, which I never had when I played. Um, but I played lovely over there. Hit the ball really nicely for three days and potted like a blind man and uh, didn't convert at all. If Had I converted the way I played, I probably would have finished maybe a top 10 again or certainly a top 15, which would have been decent. And then I tried to want to qualify for the Senior British Open and I was flying. I was 300 through nine. Cruising 300 was going to be the mark and Lost the ball in light rough down the 10th hole on a par five out of the blue and and then got a bit edgy coming in. I was pushing a bit too hard and dropped a couple coming in. So didn't get through, which was a big blow because that's, you know, four or five times the price fund we normally play for. So trying to get up that order of merit. So And I haven't got in since. I had COVID a few weeks ago and couldn't play in a tournament and then didn't get in another one. So I'm actually traveling to Scotland tomorrow to play my fourth event at Trump. Aberdeen so and that's a big event and I was kind of last man in ish in the field so it's a bit of an opportunity I've literally worked the last 17 days I haven't had a day off so I've been playing golf every day um, and hitting balls and through lessons and playing lessons so I'm just going to go over and, and try enjoy the week and, and see where it takes me and my game is you know it's decent it's not tournament sharp but I'm kind of hoping I can have an Austrian moment and and be zen like for four. It's a four rounder this week as well. So that's a different dynamic. I haven't played four rounds of golf since 2011. So I don't know how that's <laughs> going to I probably need about a 15 shot lead on Saturday night to get it over the line yeah. on Sunday. What was the catalyst for going back Odin Tour? There's a few things. There's always kind of curiosity killed the cat. Dear old friend of mine passed away last September, quite tragically. That was a bit of a catalyst. You know, you're what, 50 years of age, so you're savagely on the back nine in your life anyway like there's no way I'm doubling that up mm. so I kind of still kind of I'd say I kind of still love golf 
I just thought, why not give it give it a go? And there's actually, I wouldn't say, like a lot of my mates have been kind of saying, oh, there's way less pressure now you have a job and, you know, you can just go out and freewheel it and enjoy it. But golf doesn't work like that. You still be shouting at yourself after two holes anyway. So, <laughs> but I'm trying, I'm trying to, like even this week, like my family are going to come over and my friend's, my fr- I was hoping my friend was going to caddy for me, but it looks like his back has gone crook again, so he's not going to be able to do it. So my daughter is probably going to caddy for me, so that'll be cool. She loves golf. She plays off 22. She's the junior captain here in County Loud. So. And there was a little bit of that. My little lad's only 11, so kind of kids never really saw me playing tournaments. So now they weren't too impressed with the saw and sea points, so I'm going to have to play a bit better. Um, you know, there's a bit of that too, so... It is slight adventure, but you know it's it's like anything. You still want to do as well as you possibly can. The psychology around sport is is enormous, and you know you often hear that golf is played between the years and all that kind of thing. But how important is it, and how did you deal with the ups and downs as as a touring pro? I, I dealt with it very well. I would say for like I was literally at it from ninety six to twenty twelve. And I dealt with it very well from 96 to 2010. And then I just ran out of diesel, really. And then starts chasing my tail, going to different coaches and complicating a simple equation, really. And I see that a lot, you know, with younger players too. And I would say it, you know, guys that kind of taught you how to play golf or brought you up in the game invariably know know your mechanics of course I know your mechanics but they know the person too and um, I think that's important I I just lost my way at the end really um, I played too much I kind of chased it too much and then you lose confidence you know and golf is a brutal sport you're out there competing against the best players in Europe you know and, and you probably have to have your best stuff to compete and I was probably towards the end three four shots around per round so multiply that by four, you know, away from where I needed to be. So it's a simple equation. You're just not good enough anymore. And, and that's a bitter pill to swallow because you initially get into the thing because you love it, but you end up nearly hating it at the end. And I just wasn't good enough. That was it. And it's it's a hard thing to, to have to admit to. But pro golf is a very short career. I got a lot, a lot more out of it than I think the math. It's about three and a half years of the life expectancy on tour. So. And, and that's something I'm very wary of. You know, we have this thing nowadays with young kids because they're going to be tour players. And, you know, it's getting, it seems to be getting younger and younger when the conversation starts. And it's it's dangerous ground. Like, let them let them play their Irish amateur stuff and enjoy it. And maybe go to college in America or go to college at home and get a degree and get an education and, and see where that takes you. But mm. certainly turn pro with something behind you. You know, you'll see kids now turning pro at 22, can't make it at 26, 27, and they're lost to the sport. And the fall from grace seems to be profound, and it shouldn't be. There's nothing wrong with trying the pro game and it doesn't work out. And it doesn't work out because you're not good enough. You know, that's just a simple fact of the matter. But there's no shame in that. You know, a lot of guys, when they stop, feel shame. There's no shame in, in it at all. And I would like to see a lot of those guys filtered back into the sport you know, go back into your club with your head held high and your chest out. You know, you tried something 99% of the population will never try. So just because it didn't work out, it's it's no slant on your, your character or your psyche. But I think there's a lot of damage been done to these kids because of that. And it's probably something that we need to have a little more 
kind of aftercare for them, get them back into the club, you know, get them back into amateur golf, you know, or get them in through the PGA, you know, keep them involved in the sport if they want to be. You know, even the, the mental health aspect of it is, is something a lot of people don't understand. So I think there's probably more support structures need. But you do, you feel ashamed when you stop playing. You feel not worthy and, you know, the life you saw for yourself is not there anymore. So it's trying to deal with those challenges. And um, a lot of guys have to do it on their own. And that's not easy. One of our guests last year on the podcast was Peter O'Keefe, um, who was pro, uh, came back amateur, you know, and has now won numerous amateur yeah. titles and has launched a very successful golf app, a uh, series of golf gyms. You know, the golf strong brand is getting very noticeable. So he, he would be a, a prime example of someone who went pro, didn't work out, but has, has created a different career within the golf space. There are definitely other avenues that are open to you. Peter is, he's one of the very few success stories. You know, Peter turned pro, had a crack, didn't work out for him. And he's had an amazing amateur career. Mm-hmm. And he's he's helped to develop, you know, a lot of young players. And he's come into a space, you know, with the fitness and golf. Um, like, there's no Teletubbies on tour anymore. So, no, no. you know, but he's had, he's had a wonderful amateur career and he should be hugely proud of that. He's taken a bad situation and... and you know, he's obviously a very savvy businessman too, which helps. But, mm-hmm. you know, Peter could be a good guy to to be there to advise, you know, some mm-hmm. of the amateurs that tried for a couple of years. and Maybe he needs to be on some sort of a committee with Golf Ireland. Or I would personally stop a lot of them turning pro because just some of them are just never going to make it. But that narrative has been fed to them from 15, 16, 17, 18 years of age. You're going to be a pro, you're going to be a pro. And some of them are just not, not good enough, you know, mm-hmm. and... And they need to be maybe incorporated in the system, whether it's through management or whatever it is. I think from 96 on the European Tour to 2008, there was only eight players outside of a winner's category retained their status for that for those 12 years. And, um, which is frightening. Like you're talking about probably a couple of thousand players. The the golden goose is not, is not that golden. And um, we probably have three, four five amateurs every year that do something in the championship and think that, you know, I'm going to be a pro. If you look at a couple of the guys come out of the States at the moment, you know, they're high end. Like I would, I would suggest if you're not a top 50 amateur in the world, the likelihood of you making a career in professional golf are very limited, not to burst people's bubbles, but you need to have a very good structure behind you. Give yourself a three, four year window and that's it. Cause there's no money to be made. You know, on the mini tours, you're just burning, burning euros every week. Which makes love him or loathe them, and he's got plenty of detractors. But uh, Ian Poulter going pro with like a handicap of four, and in fairness, the career that he has achieved, like he he would be an outlier when you've guys who who are like you know plus five and plus six going pro and they can't make it. Like, yeah, well, then listen, I have a lot of problems with the handicap system. I think how some of these lads are getting the handicaps they are. It's an absolute nonsense. You know, it really is. Because the thing is, you've got what, your best eight out of 20 rounds? I mean, it's your best 20 out of 20 when you're a pro. There's no yeah, no striking a balance here. I'd probably still be on tour if I could do eight out of 20. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> do you have any regrets from your time as a pro? There's literally no point looking back. I made so many stupid mistakes. I did so many silly things. You know, I made tons of mistakes. That's just life. 
I didn't learn enough from the mistakes I made. Everyone makes the mistakes. It's trying to learn and adapt as quick as you can on your feet. Uh, and I was probably too emotional about the sport as well. That is probably the only, if I had to look back, and, and I think the guys that did better than me were probably less game, were way less emotional, and sold more of the business. But then that's my character, that's my makeup, so you can't change the person you are. Probably at a stage where I don't want to. You know, I'm probably more comfortable in my own skin than I've ever been, and, and that's the biggest, the biggest challenge for anyone in life. You know, if you don't like yourself, no one else is certainly going to like you. So that's kind of what I'm trying to move forward with and, and see see, see where it takes me in life. I'm a financial advisor by profession, so it would be remiss of me to ask you some at least one financial question. So what would be your, your best and worst financial decision? My best and worst financial decision? My best financial decision was none. My worst financial decision was buying a house in 2006. I got kind of caught up in all the muck with everyone else. And I went down the very Irish, get a load of property and, you know, stable income and all that sort of stuff. And I was I was never greedy, really, about it. Just got a bit unlucky the way the cards, cards fell. My best financial decision, uh, not buying an M3, I'd say. I was close. I didn't really make too many good ones, John, to be brutally honest. Probably the worst financial decision I made was living my life on a current account. But I did. I was very lucky that my my dad tied my hands behind my back and made me invest heavily in a pension. So that's probably, thinking off the top of my head, that was my best financial decision. Pensions are are a good thing. I'll be taking that soundbite of this episode. Gary Murphy says pensions are good. Oh, they are. I tell people that every day of the week. Who would your money be on for the Irish Open? Rory McIlroy. Yeah. He'd, be prohib- he'd be prohibitive odds, but I presume the course is just made for him if he strikes any of the performances. Well, yeah, it depends. They'll probably put him at about 7-2. to two, But if he's 5-1 to one or anything like that, it's a free bet. And who else? Let me think. A Turl Hatton would probably be a really good bet too. Hmm. Kind of weird that the Ryder Cup, the Ryder Cup picks yeah. are, are done before the Irish Open, isn't it? Yeah, so like the Ryder Cup team, let's see, let's see what my guessing is like now. So the seven guys playing the Tour Championship are in it. The eighth is going to be Robert McIntyre on category, mm-hmm. and then I think he'll go Shane Lowry, Seamus Power ten. I don't see him swaying heavily towards Europeans. I think if Aberg does anything this week or next week, he'll pick him. What about Aaron Roy? As much chance as myself or yourself, John. Zero. One of the whole guards, Nikolai, might be an outsider. Um, mm. and Justin, sorry, Justin Rose as well. He's definitely getting picked. Oh, Rose, definitely, yeah. So given the fact that you had a long pro career, you have come back and you've done coaching, uh, obtained a, a fairly high-profile job in the K-Club, and now we're going back on the Legends Tour. So there's been many moving parts. What would you say your blueprint to success or your blueprint for a successful life would be? Uh, my blueprint... That's a lot of question. My blueprint to a successful life. Get a pension. Never spend more than you earn. Always respect money. People take it for granted. Find a good life partner. 
that's important. I think the person that you you choose to be your partner um, is a huge, huge bearing in how your life plays out. And surround yourself with smarter people than yourself. I think also you just you really just have to have blind faith in your journey, no matter where it takes you. You know, because more often than not, you know, one one door closes, another one or two can open. Um, and you can never stand still. I think if you know if you're standing still and think you know more than you should, you're you're dead in the water, really. And never trust too many people. I think you always have a, a tight circle of maximum of three or four people that you really truly trust in life. That's where a lot of people kind of get into into problems. The world is getting so complicated nowadays. People are you know, really struggling to understand themselves. There's too much information out there. Um, and it's always about the next thing. I think the key to life is trying to be as present as you possibly can be. And that's very difficult because, you know, the world is changing so much. You hear it a lot now with sports people. You know, Djokovic's comments about, you know, like he's done and he's achieved so much and he's still working on himself every single day. So... If you think you have it licked, you're going to get licked. Like that's just the, like life is an evolving thing. But, um, but certainly you have to have under un, unwavering belief in, in your journey. You know, wherever that might take. You know, it's it's rare nowadays that someone leaves university and they have one job and that's it. So you know you got to think on your feet and, and I think always kind of, within reason. Like I've gone through, you know, so much in the last kind of. 25 years from being, you know, fresh faced, I'm going to dominate professional golf to, you know, 15 years later being absolutely on my arse. So, and you just have to keep going. That's, that's the thing in life. And it's hard. And sometimes it seems impossible, but, you know, we're here for a good time, not a long time. So I think you have to enjoy the journey as much as trying to create the journey for yourself. I'm going to ask you one final question. Ultimate golfer driving. Aren't they short game? Whatever. Ultimate golfer, Rory McIlroy. Rory's driving. Uh, Shane Lowry's iron play. Luke Donald's wedge play. Tiger Woods' putting. Jesus, he'd be a good player, wouldn't he, that for? <laughs> you put a lot of money on him, wouldn't you? He wouldn't need a pension, John. <laughs> he would not, no. He would not. Gary, uh, thanks so much for coming on. I know this is a really busy time between getting prepared for the tournament in Scotland and the Irish Open is around the corner. Thank you very much uh, for coming on the Blueprint Podcast and I hope our paths will cross in the future. Pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Please drop us a like or a follow wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify, Apple, Google and please give us a 5 out of 5 star rating. It does really help. Thank you so much.